Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and honored to do these lectures. And I want to just take us in right away, and I have a big question for us to explore today as we think about congregational life, is could change actually hurt? As we think about the future of Protestant in America, could change actually hurt? Some of us are old enough in this room to uh, remember when the question of should the church change was an open question. Like you would gather a group of pastors and half the room would not be so sure the church needed to change and the other half maybe really wanted the church to change. We're at an interesting time where I think everyone in a room, usually across Protestantism in America, agrees the church needs to change. And yet there's something kind of tragic about that. Right at this moment where we all agree that Protestant in America needs to change, it feels like no one knows how or no one has the energy to do it. So it's a little bit like if you found out you got your uh, tickets to your favorite concert and then the very day of your favorite concert, and I worked really hard to think of a band that would make me not seem really old and I couldn't think of any, so I'm going to pass that up. But if you had tickets for your favorite concert and then you found out you got the flu, you got the flu the, the day you had front row seats to your favorite concert, it would be very bad reasoning if you thought the concert gave you the flu. You know, like it would just be, it's unfortunate timing that here you have concert tickets and you've gotten sick. I think we often feel the same kind of way at this moment in Protestant in America. Now everyone agrees that we need to change and yet we don't have the energy for it. Isn't that unfortunate? But I want to explore this morning with you if it isn't possible that our very views of change are getting us sick particularly coming out of the pandemic, if the necessity to change isn't actually infusing us with the sickness. And the sickness we want, I want to call uh, Zeitkonkreit. Now, I just put up a German word on the board, um, and I told the pastors earlier that it's, it's a scientific fact that um, philosophers' quotes have tryptophan in them. Well, German words force you like a Pavlovian response to check your phone. So don't do it. H hang with me. But Zakrankeit is a, a word that the Germans use for time sickness, what it means to have a time sickness. And is it possible that we have a time sickness? Now, this time sickness is caused by this constant necessity to accelerate and go faster and faster. And we feel this in our institutions as well as within ourselves. So it has three major points of this acceleration that causes us to have this Zankrankeit. And the first is something you would all guess if we were talking about this, is the technological acceleration. I mean, if we were doing a survey says, you'd all say, of course, our technology has accelerated our lives. Um, things have just seemed to go faster and faster when it comes to technology. And if I was to take you back to the early 2000s where it was still a contested conversation, if the church needed to change, those in the room who were saying, yes, the church needs to change, were often pointing to things like the internet and blogs that force the church to have to change. The gadgets we had are forcing us to have to think about change. But when we talk about technological acceleration, we're not just talking about gadgets. We're talking about the constant speeding up of all the forms of our lives. Hartmut Rose, the German uh, social theorist, says this. He says, technological acceleration is the intentional speeding up of the goal direction processes of transportation, communication, and production. So when we're talking about technological acceleration, we're not just talking about new apps. We're talking about transportation, communication, and production always speeding up. Now, there's something existential that happens to us as human beings when we feel this, when we can feel this acceleration of these three things. And one of the things that happens is we start to get really worried about our brains. We think that our brains are going to fry. 
Now, some of us, again, are old enough in this room to remember that it was big-time media conversation, like 60 Minutes stories about 2005 that they predicted by 2015, 2020, most of us would have brain tumors. It was big-time news, New York Times. The idea was that your cell phone, they worried, was going to give us all some kind of brain tumor. I don't know if those of you in this room are old enough to remember this, that we were all supposed to have at least some of us, supposed to have brain tumors by now. Never happened. Never happened. I don't know if the science was wrong, but one of the things that changed that they could never have imagined is that people actually stopped talking on their phones. Like in 2007, Apple created a phone that no one talks on anymore, and now everyone needs to see a chiropractor from looking down at their phone. But it's a very common um, fear that when this speed-up happens technologically that we start to worry about our brains. And this is actually a rerun, worrying about our brains. In the 19th century, in the 1880s, when the transportation train was coming on, when the passenger train was coming along, there were doctors who were publishing articles that said that they did not suggest that human beings should get on a train. They did not know that if you went over 25 miles an hour, if the human brain could handle it. So that even the train, that this became a, a, a major fear. They thought that maybe if you're, you went over 25 miles an hour that you'd become concussed. Um, so they suggested not doing it at all. Now, I am not a math major, but I'm pretty sure like Mach 6 is faster than 25 miles an hour. Um, but this was a major, major fear. And it wasn't until 1883 that America actually standardized its clocks. Like, think about that. It's not until 1883 that we have our time zones and that we put everyone on the same clock. Now, I'm not sure if this is quite true because I don't know my Texas geography quite well and someone could look this up. But you can think before 1883, it really didn't matter if Waco and Dallas were on the same time. It didn't matter. It could be 1215 in Dallas and uh, 12.30 in Waco. It didn't really matter because you couldn't go fast enough for that to matter. You know, you were only going by horseback uh, as fast as you can go. But once there was passenger train, once you had to correlate train schedules, you were going fast enough that you, it mattered that both Dallas and Waco were on the same time. Before that, when the sun was high in the sky, it, it was the middle of the day. But that, that's pretty, pretty late. So you see how this acceleration continues to happen within our lives. But it also, it's not just this kind of sense of how we feel this within, within our lives and within our, our structures in the world, but it also starts to frame our sense of the good life. And it particularly starts to frame our sense of what even is a good congregation. And it becomes very important that in the midst of this acceleration that we can find our way towards more and more availability that we can reach more and more. The good congregation inside of an accelerating age is the one that has more and more reach. I think we feel this after the pandemic. If you were a small church particularly, and you had to go onto Zoom, and all of a sudden like eight people from Arizona or around the country started to Zoom into your church, then you went back in person, and you didn't want to lose those eight people. So now you are IT person and preacher on Sunday, trying to keep those people there. You can see how this accelerates our life. It gives us more that we have to do. But ironically, there's a certain way that this availability and this acceleration also infuses guilt upon us. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I often do audits at our, our, uh, our dining room table on who's using what streaming service. 
So we got sucked in to Apple One. Do you know what Apple One is? So Apple One is their, their bundled all of their streaming services into one price, one low, low price that they keep raising every, every few weeks. Um, and so they bundle everything. Apple News, Apple TV, Apple Music, oh, Apple Arcade. Oh, I have access to all of this. Um, Apple Fitness. But I have this overwhelming feeling that I have all this available to me. I have like the 50 greatest yoga instructors in the world in my pocket. I have almost every song that's every, ever been recorded in my pocket. I have 120 newspapers in my pocket, and yet I don't ever have time to use any of it. And so I'll sit around my kitchen table and I'll ask my kids like, okay, so who's using Apple Arcade? Has anyone got onto Apple Arcade? Is some, please someone, for the love of God, someone tell me that they've got onto Apple Fitness. Like auditing how much we've used this and there's a certain sense of guilt. It is all available to you and yet no time to use it. We often think in this kind of secular age that people escape guilt. People don't feel guilty anymore. Actually, they feel quite guilty that even the access to all of this, the availability of all this, people feel like they can't keep up. Like here it is, all the greatest literature in the world is at your fingerprint, your fingertips, and yet you don't have any time to use it. So we often think of this as this first way of acceleration is this technological acceleration. The second would be the acceleration of our social lives. So we often stop at technological acceleration. Of course, we know that technology is going faster and faster, but we forget there's also this sense of our social lives accelerating, that they go faster and faster. And maybe this makes some good sense because if communication, transportation, production continue to speed up, there's no way to be a human being without those things. And so if those keep speeding up, those are going to change our social norms quite a bit. And we're going to be in the world in a different way. And maybe it also makes sense that after one pandemic happened, the other pandemic happened. As soon as production um, uh, was slowed down and uh, transportation was stopped, then we had the other pandemic occur that started in my own city of Minneapolis uh, around George, George Floyd's murder, that we start to start questioning significant things. But we have had this moment of an incredible amount of acceleration when it comes to our social lives in just the last few decades. So one way to think about this is to think about it as a decay rate. Now, one of these, particularly these uh, social theorists, these German social theorists, will talk about the compression of the present. And I don't know if you feel this. I definitely feel this, that it feels like the present has become shorter and shorter. And one of the epidemics of being a modern person, a late modern person, is we rarely are where our bodies are. I, I mean, I'll just make the confession right now. I have been on 35W or 35 North um, pretty much most of the day, you know, thinking about how I'm going to get back to DFW for my flight, that I'm here, but I'm also anticipating what's next. I'm sure most of you are here, but you're also thinking, I have class at one o'clock. Am I ready for that? And one of the elements of being a late modern person is we're rarely present with our bodies. Um, and inside of this compression of the present, it means that things become no longer of the present at a different rate. So to make this, to help this make sense and click, I want to think again about technology, just as a way to illustrate this social change. So think about how quickly a cell phone or a gaming system or your computer becomes not of the present. So I was in a coffee shop just before the pandemic, happened to be in a university town, and it was a really crowded, really hip coffee shop, and there was nowhere to sit. And I happened to have a really pretty good seat 
up by the barista, and I watched this young woman come in, and she had books and her computer on top of the books. And so she ordered her, her coffee. It was one of those coffee shops with a very hard, polished cement floor. She ordered her coffee. She went up to get it, and you could see this about to happen, that her computer started to slide. And all of a sudden, she lost it, and it slid out, and it, bang, hit the ground. And it hit the ground. Everyone's talking, and it hit the ground. Everyone stopped, <gasps> you know, paused, and looked at her. And I was really impressed with her because she handled it with such class. And she seemed really cool. She, it hit the ground, and she looked at everyone. And she said, it's okay, everyone. It was just an old computer. And for some reason, that, like, everyone was cool with it. Like, oh, okay. And I looked at the computer, <laughs> and it didn't look that old. You know, I mean, maybe four or five years old. But the point is, a computer's old if it's five years. I mean, not to talk about Apple again, but AppleCare will not cover a com uh, computer that's over three years old because they're like, Come on, Grandpa, get a new computer. Like, it's, it's an old one. And your cell phone, two years. That's, that's it. And so things decay at a very different rate. I'm a major PBS nerd, and I watched the, uh, the, the um, Ken Burns uh, Hemingway um, uh, documentary. And he would transition scenes in that kind of Ken Burns way, you know. Um, but he would always show Hemingway's typewriter and then go back. And you can go, you can visit Hemingway's typewriter down in the Florida Keys in the museum. I cannot imagine, say, Stephen King has any idea where any of the computers are that he's used to type up. It, a, a typewriter decays at a much longer rate than a computer um, decays. It just, that's the way it functions. And even the way my son uses a computer and the way I use a computer, completely different. When I switch computers, it takes like four hours, five hours, six hours to transfer data from one to the other. He can switch computers in like five minutes because for him, everything is up on, on the cloud. With, uh, over two summers ago, we were flying back on an international flight on Air France, and I had this tragic thing happen to me where I had downloaded a whole season of shows, and I was, that's how I was going to spend this flight. And I went to access the downloads in the app would not get to the downloads. It kept spinning, looking for the site, and because I wasn't on Wi-Fi, I couldn't access it. It was tragic. I mean, please, give me your compassion. It was, a whole, it was a whole season here. So I had this thought, like, okay, if I could just touch the internet, then it would go, and then I would be able to hit these, hit these shows. So I started to go on Air France's Wi-Fi, and it was like 25 bucks for, you know, to be on the Wi-Fi, and I didn't want to do that. And my son's sitting next to me. He's 17 at the time. He's 18 now. Beautiful kid, contrarian. Very difficult kid, but good kid. And he, uh, he, he said, what's wrong? He's very into computers. And he, I said, well, I can't, you know, there's this paywall, and I can't get beyond it. And he grabs me. He says, let me see your iPad. And he starts looking at it, and he goes into things, and I'm watching him. He finally gives it back to me. He says, well, I can't do anything. But if I had my computer, I could probably work around this paywall. And I didn't know what to do because I was overwhelmed. At one level, I thought, how does this kid know how to work around a paywall? And on the other hand, it was the nicest thing he had ever done for me. <laughs> so I did know how to balance this. But he, the decay rate for him is so much more exponential than it is for me in this. All right, I tell you all this to think about our social norms and how quickly our social norms change and what is of the present. Now, of course, you all remember this little TV show called The Office, right? You all remember The Office. We're still watching The Office. Um, the Office is starting to be a little bit of time ago, uh, but not that long ago. And, of course, you know this artist, Billie Eilish. And if you know Billie Eilish's Grammy Award-winning um, album, you'll, listen, you'll hear little clips of The Office in it when she transitions songs. So a journalist asked her, why 
are there these pieces of the office? And she said, well, the reason is, is because I just am watching the office all the time. I'm just streaming it constantly. When I'm home, it's just on in the background. And this was a big deal. When Peacock started its streaming service, they were going to take back all of their NBC properties, and they were going to take back, they like gave a two-year warning that they were going to take back the office. And it was a huge issue. It was like the first dent of Netflix because they realized that New York Times ran a story that it was amazing. That's something like, I'm making up this number, but it is something like this, like 32% of all of Netflix streams were the office. And then they discovered it was young adults, that young adults would just put on the office and it would just be the background noise to their life. So this journalist asked Billie Eilish, who's like her generation, why? And she said this, she said, the reason that I have the office on all the time is because it just feels nostalgic. It feels like a lost world. It feels like a world that, uh, you know, it, it helps me deal with my anxiety because it just feels like an old world. Now, for some of us, that's a punch in the stomach. Like, that feels like a long time ago. But it shows you, if you rewatch this, and you will often, if you, walk in a, if you are on an airplane and you walk down the aisle, you will see people watching The Office all the time. But watch it now. Some of you probably are watching it right now. Um, but if, if you watch it, you will hear some jokes and go, oh, I don't think you can say that anymore. It's not that long ago. And so they asked Steve Carell just a few years ago if he would be part of a reboot of The Office. Would he reboot The Office? And he said no. He said, I wouldn't do it. He partly didn't need to do it because he's a movie star now. Why would he need to be part of it? But this is what he told the journalist, his justification. He said, no, I won't be part of it because uh, I just don't think Michael Scott's jokes are appropriate right now. I just don't think they're appropriate. Another, another way to think about it is they've decayed. You can still watch it as nostalgia, like I used to watch Gilligan's Island as a kid or something, but it no longer is of the present. Um, the social change has accelerated beyond it. Now, maybe you find that to be really good news. Maybe you find that to be disorientating, but that's very fast, these social changes, the norms of what can be said, of what cannot be said. And if you're a pastor running, uh, leading a congregation, it's hard to hold these things together. And people tend not to take it too well when you tell them they're no longer of the present. You know, they, they, they find that to be offensive. But there is this huge acceleration that has occurred even in our social norms. So we can think then that another frame of what becomes good is accessibility. How accessible can we become? The good congregation will be more and more accessible, and you're going to have to run faster and faster and faster to make things more accessible to people. And that's going to continue to change, and you're going to have to keep up with that. You see how this acceleration functions faster and faster. This leads us to the third form of acceleration, and this is just the acceleration of the pace of our lives. It just feels like the pace of our lives have changed. And this is odd, and people have pointed this out, but shouldn't these time-saving accelerations of technology and even the acceleration of our social norms that gives us more space to just express and be the identities that we feel most comfortable in, shouldn't that at some level release us from just this ragged pace of our lives? Well, of course, we know it doesn't. And a good example of why this doesn't happen is to think about the way email works. Now, in an alternate universe, I, th I think it w it, it, you could imagine in an alternate universe that in every major American city, my gosh, in every global city, in somewhere in the middle of the city is a statue to a web browser. Because think about it in this alternate world. Thanks to email that comes around, what, 94, 95, since emails arrived, you have all got more time back in your life. Thanks to email, 
It's, I mean, think about it. Like before email, if you had the kind of job where you had to write correspondence and you had to write, say, 10 letters a day, how long would it take you? Maybe hour at least, hour and a half, two hours, get it typed out, find an envelope, get it in the mail. Well, here comes email. In the mid-90s comes around. And correspondence, which used to take you two hours, now, clearly, even if you go slow, you can do 10 emails, half hour. So there it is. For the last 20 or so years, you have had an extra hour and a half in your life. We have a whole generation who has spent more time with their parents. We've been eating right and exercising since 1995. We've had all this extra time in our lives to read. I mean, we're the, we're the best read generations ever because of we just this extra hour and a half stress levels burn out nowhere because of email browser. That's why when you go to every major city, there it is, a Netscape bronze statue that we all are so thankful for. Okay, you know it doesn't work this way. And it doesn't work this way, not because it doesn't take that much time to write an email. It does save time. But what it does is it doesn't actually give you time because it doesn't make it so that you can get this extra time. What email does is allow you to do more actions inside your units of time. So you no longer are having to do 10 correspondence. Thanks to email, you now have to do 30, 40, 50 email responses a day. And then you start to realize you can't do that in two hours. So now you need to take your phone or your iPad or your computer to your son's swim meet and do emails while, while he's swimming. And then you're really not at his swim meet at all. Your, your head is in your computer. So one of the things I really worry about in our, our discourse about the church when we talk about the necessity for innovation, that innovation often, especially in its Silicon Valley cadence, is really about doing more with less. It's trying to get more actions inside your units of time. And I really worry that when we talk about pastoral formation being about innovation, what you're actually saying to a group of Protestant pastors is you're going to have to do more with less. Find ways to get more actions inside your units of time. And this has, I think, huge ramifications connected to it. So this leads us then to think that what makes a good congregation is attainability. The more and more you can continue to attain um, these A's of accessibility, availability, attainability becomes very significant. But this has its spiritual consequences. It's not just, man, it makes us feel exhausted, but I think it has very deep spiritual consequences. Let me illustrate this uh, for you by playing a story for you. You'll hear it um, from, I think, a very prophetic news organization that can point to the depths of our situation, um, The Onion. All right, so The Onion ran this story, of course, this fictional story. Man on the cusp of having fun suddenly remembers every single one of his responsibilities, all right? So listen to this. It's about a, a minute and a half. It'll be read to you, um, but here it is. According to sources, Platt tried to put his responsibility-laden thoughts out of his mind and loosen up by opening another beer, but suddenly remembered a magazine subscription that needed to be renewed by Friday a medical bill he thought might now be overdue, and the fact that he needed to do laundry by tonight or he would run out of clean socks and underwear. Who made this guac, said the man, who almost left himself to take pleasure in the beautiful evening with his closest friends before he let his brain become consumed with thoughts about how he needs to move on from his current job but is putting off the work necessary to make the transition. It's delicious. 
While the barbecue's host chatted with Platt about how excited he was to see the upcoming Superman movie, sources confirmed that all Platt could think about was the fact that his recently married sister was coming to town next weekend and was supposed to stay with him, which reminded him that he needed to clean his apartment, which reminded him that he needed to buy extra bedding for his sister to sleep on, which reminded him that he needed to make an after-work trip to Bed Bath & Beyond, which reminded him that he would be tired after work and wouldn't want to go to Bed Bath & Beyond, which reminded him that he also needed to go to the grocery store because his sister would think he's irresponsible if she saw his empty refrigerator, which reminded him that he and his sister aren't as close as he'd like, which reminded him that his parents already had a house and two cars by the time they were his age, which reminded him that he's been with his girlfriend for over five years and that while everything was going fairly well, he felt overwhelmed by the prospect of marriage and the mounting pressure to propose. Yeah, Man of Steel looks good, said a smiling Platt, who was only thinking about how he graduated from college over 10 years ago and still owed $86,000 in student loans. Can't wait to see it. Accounts confirmed the man nearly convinced himself that all of his responsibilities would be taken care of in due time and that he should just relax when a friend mentioned a recent road trip he had taken with his wife, which prompted Platt to mull over the fact that he still needed to renegotiate the lease terms of his 2010 Jetta, a task he was delaying until he had a fender bender repaired. In addition, Platt began thinking about the number of open envelopes on his kitchen table, some of the contents of which he remembered were actually important and should be rechecked before he throws them away. Hey, I have to get going, said the man, who could barely recall anything that anyone at the gathering had said the entire evening. Just a couple of things I need to get done tonight. This was great, though, he added. All right, you hear it. I mean, it's not only a kind of sense of how do we keep up, but it's a spiritual issue. Um, This is not only kind of feeling like, gosh, I'm falling behind. This is a way to feel alienated from your own life, that this this acceleration makes us feel alienated from our very own lives. So we do have this deep sense about busyness then, and busyness just becomes endemic to what it means to be a late modern person. But in many ways, busyness um, becomes our mark of what it means to be living well. I don't know if you do this, but when people say, how are you doing? You say, I'm busy. I'm doing busy. And it communicates two things. It communicates um, that you're expending a lot of energy and you're a little tired because you're expending a lot of energy. But it also communicates you're living well. You know, you're in demand. You have availability, accessibility, and attainability. You're going after it. Um, But it's a very risky reality. And it could have huge spiritual ramifications. So uh, we do have this sense that the best form of action is the expenditure of energy that the best actions are the actions that expend the most um, energy. So Eric Fromm, a uh, uh, Frankfurt social theorist, says this. He says, the modern, in the modern sense, activity means a quality of behavior that brings about visible effect by the expenditure of energy. And what he's really building off here, which I think is fascinating for seminarians to think about, is he's talking about the Reformation and how the Reformation equalizes action for good theological reasons, equalizes action. It's what Charles Taylor says in um, Sources of the Self, that there's a transition from what you do to how you do it. It's not necessarily important, necessarily in broad strokes, what you do, but it's how you do it. Do you do it before God? Do you do it passionately? Do you do it uh, faithfully? Um, But it's, there's, every other form of action is equalized. 
And Fromm's point is when that becomes really secularized, when we take God out of it, then the only moral value on the best action is the action that expends the most energy. Whoever is the most exhausted wins. Now, I don't have to say much to academics in this room, but we know very clearly that you tend to feel like the academic who is the busiest is the one who is the most important. Or in the context of pastoral ministry, that what makes your pastoral ministry the best is it's really busy. I'm a really busy person. I'm expending the most energy. It's a fascinating little tale about um, uh, Gregory the Great, the, uh, the bishop, who when he would ordain his priests, he would look at them. The last thing he would say after they would go through the ordination process is he would say to them, you better not. You absolutely better not. Hear my words as your bishop, as the words of God. You better not be too busy. Because your job, a big part of your job, is to contemplate the Trinity. Now try that at your next personnel meeting. You know, like I need about 40% uh, of my schedule cleared so I can contemplate the Trinity. It's a very different sense of what qualifies as good action for Gregory. But in our late modern perspective, especially in the backside of a late capitalism, the best action is the action that expends the most energy, which therefore makes busyness have a certain moral weight to it. The person who wins in this room is the busiest person, is the one who wins. You have the most availability, accessibility, and attainability. So busyness really becomes our kind of sense of fullness. The full life is the busy life. It's irony that we can't get into now, but it's very fascinating that very busy people look for very busy churches to be part of. You think it could go the other way, that very busy people running hedge funds or you know, traveling around the world doing stuff or just incredible hours of work would want to find a contemplative space on Sunday to sit and to think, but it does not work that way. People uh, who are busy look for churches with a lot of programs, look for a lot of things going on that we tend to, as busy people, because it becomes a moral code for us, we look for other busy things to be part of. And yet this could have significant ramifications. So it not only affects us internally, but also our structures. Uh, Henry Daly, uh, Herman Daly, who used to run the um, World Bank, says that the way our modern institutions function is with this equation. Now, I have to be quite honest, I don't speak mathematics. So, but he says it works this way, is that M plus C equals M primed. That money plus commodities equals more money. No one invests money to not make more money. And maybe, he says this goes to our other institutions as well, and maybe this will make sense to you being um, here at Baylor, is that good research universities function like this. Um, knowledge plus research equals more knowledge. That's the point. You need to create more. And if you're watching the NCAA basketball tournament, you know that you hear these commercials all the time. That each school gets a commercial at, you know, before halftime and then after halftime, and they all are that very equation. The University of Illinois, where breakthroughs are happening every day. The University of Kentucky, where tomorrow is happening now. The idea that we are turning what we know through our research into more. Well, I think this affects the church as well, that ours is probably M plus P equals M primed. Members plus programs equals more members. I actually know about a church in Kansas City that realized they had a problem, that they couldn't make this happen because their parking lot at this fairly big church, uh, they couldn't get people out of the parking lot in less than 20 minutes. And they knew they would never be able to grow unless they could do that. So they did a capital campaign. They raised $10 million 
so that they could pull the permits and they could work with the city to get an off-ramp close to their church parking lot so they could get people out in less than 20 minutes with the idea that it could grow. Now, I don't want to throw complete shade on that, uh, but that's a very different kind of moral imagination of what ministry is about. Or maybe for us, it's something more like um, R plus R equals R primed. Resources plus relevance equals more resources. Or maybe it's relevance plus resources equals more relevance. But your job as a pastor and a minister is to take on the form of action of doing more, of getting more. Accelerate, go. The busier you are, the better. This is how you do God's work in the world. And yet I think obviously it has a huge issue at play, that we have huge problems um, with thinking this. And I think it can actually lead to the church being quite depressed. And I think this is what's happening with a zeitgeist, is that people are knowing now is the time to change, but change means acceleration of going faster. And part of the issue with the continued acceleration is when you can't keep up, it does seem to impose a deep sense of despondency on you. Now, I don't want to go into this too far, but I would recommend this book to you um, by Alan Ernberg, who is a Parisian social theorist and has written this really great book. That name doesn't seem Parisian, but they, supposedly it is. And uh, he's written this book called The Weariness of the Self, which is very interesting. But the actual French translation is more insightful. And is there any first French, is a first language people in here? Okay, good. Now I'm just going to say this, and you can think, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Um, and so the, the real title is The La Fatigue d'Etre Soi. Now, the, the way that that is translated is The Fatigue of Being Yourself. That seems incredibly insightful. And his point in this book is he's looking at how depression has become kind of the epidemic of late modern people. And one of his articulations is that depression has a lot to do as a larger societal phenomenon, maybe not individually, but as a larger societal phenomenon, is it becomes exhaustion. The inability to keep up and to keep going, and that when you just simply don't have the energy anymore, you feel like you are being run over or passed up. Um, and he thinks this becomes a major issue. So the drive to always perform, to always achieve, to be in... in debate to be uh, trying to achieve your ends at all times, and the shift from living under instead of shoulds to living under coulds. That late modern people don't necessarily live under should. You should obey God's command. You should follow in the footsteps of your family. We live under the burden of the could. You should feel very guilty because you could have done more. You could have been more. If you would have finished that degree, just think what you could have done. And that this continued racing for could to accelerate, to have more availability, accessibility, and attainability imposes this deep sense of lethargy. So I wonder if we're not in a state of the la fatigue d'etre eglise, that we're too depressed to be church. That people just feel like they can't keep up. And what this will mean is that we need a different form of pastoral action. And one that's not about acceleration, but about something um, else. And so one way to think about this, here's that Alan Ernberg looks a little more Parisian when you look at him, but he says, depression appears not as a pathology of unhappiness, but more as a pathology of change. See, there's a form of change that just can actually do the opposite of what we want. So we need a different form of action, and I think we need to think more in the context of resonance than we think of acceleration. Now, there's, this is a, a long way to go, but I, just, and I think this has more theological depth, but I just want to share two stories with you to a story in, in a clip that maybe illustrate this. And 
what I want to do is more show you than tell you what this is in a different kind of way of change. Then another way of thinking of this form of resonance is to think about it as encounter, this depth of encounter. An encounter that doesn't force us into more, but leads us into an encounter of shared life. So I have a friend who's a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, and in the Presbyterian system, you have a session, which is kind of like the church council, and that church session had major problems, major conflict within that church. They knew, knew they needed to change. So he didn't know what to do, so he decided that they were going to be having this session retreat, and he knew that there could be blood spilled, like death could be on the way, because they had big, big decisions to be made, like what color should the carpet be in the narthex? And bodies can be dropped for that, to say it crassly. So he, needed, he knew he needed to do something. So he had heard at some pastor's conference or something, some exercise. So he took chairs and he faced them with each other, like four on one side, four on another. So you would be sitting and facing someone knee to knee. And then on one side, he put a notepad and paper and he said, we're going to do this exercise. What we're going to do is the people who have the notepad and paper, they are going to look at the person across from them. And they're just going to look at them for two minutes of silence. Just look at them. And then they're going to take another two minutes and they're going to sketch their face. All right, you can imagine how this went. You can feel it in your own body. You're like, ugh. They all are like, this is weird. You know, so they're making faces. And, and so then it would go these four minutes and he'd say switch and they would switch people and on and on it would go. So it went for about 20 minutes. Well, in this church are two people that I think are in every church. There was Jody. And Jody, the Jody in this church happened to be mid-30s, stumbled into the church and really volunteered for everything, always had a positive attitude, was just a wonderful person. And Jody, uh, you know, she, she kept the church going during a pastoral transition. She paid out of her own pocket for their service on the beach. She was just a really upbeat, great person. Churches need those. God blesses us with people like that. Church also had another person I think every church has in it, Dave. And Dave, this Dave happened to be in his early 70s, and Dave is a really hard person to be around. He's the kind of person who tells you why the car you bought was stupid and why the way you're raising your four-year-old is a really dumb thing to do. He's the kind of guy who had an earlier session meeting. They said they needed to really think about giving and then was found after the service shaking people down for money. Like, he's just a, a blunt object, and he's, he's just hard to be around. Well, church, but Dave is willing to do stuff, and churches need that. So Dave is on the session. So they finished this drawing each other's face, and uh, the pastor, my friend, asked, so what was that like for you? And people were like, yeah, pastor, it was weird. That was really super weird. Um, but... Yeah, it was good. I liked it. Yeah, okay, yeah. It seemed to be doing what he wanted. Except they get to Dave. I'm like, Dave, what was the experience like with you? And Dave just goes off. Dave goes, well, yeah, I grew there and it was fine. Except when I looked at Jody. He said, oh, Jody, I mean, I just felt like she was judging me. I just felt like she, I didn't felt like she was looking down on me. I, didn't, you know, I just, I felt awful. I felt like just, she was just judging me. And no, no one knows what to make of this. They think, wait, wait, sweet Jody was intimidating Dave? And he's like, yeah, I just, she, she, it was awful. She was just judging me. She was just judging me. And now no one, everyone feels very uncomfortable. And Jody is blinking as fast as she can so the tears don't come out. And Dave is just berating her. And everyone is kind of like looking away. The oxygen is being sucked out of the room. And finally, my friend stops and says, thanks, Dave. First of all, thank you for your honesty. But this is confusing. Can you help us understand what's going on here? I don't know. She's just judging me. She's just, Dave, thanks. But can you help us understand this? And he was quiet. And he looked down, he tried to talk, and he stopped. And he said, no, no, that's it. And he gathered himself, and he said, um, well, a lot of you, I told that, um, that my daughter Donna, 
who's about Jody's age, that she just moved home. And uh, you asked, oh, is she going to be coming to church now? And I said, no, she can't come to church because she works on Sundays. But I was lying to you all. She doesn't work on Sundays. Um, well, that all doesn't matter anyhow now because she's just lost her job. See, the reason that Donna had to move home is because she really suffers from some severe anxiety. And she started missing shifts because her anxiety was so bad. And uh, I guess what it is, is when I look at Jody, I see who Donna could be if the anxiety wasn't there. And everything changed. That's what my friend said. Everything changed. Not a change to accelerate and do more, but a change of encounter. That Dave was still Dave, hard guy to be around, but he was a person who had others that he loved. That there was a moment where my friend would articulate it as a kind of almost sacramental experience of sharing in each other's lives, of being connected. Much like Bonhoeffer talks about, which is this core framing idea of Stelvertretung, that we share each other's place as Jesus Christ shares our place. It's a very different form of action than acceleration. So I want to conclude with just my last five minutes by playing a video clip for you. And this is a video clip of the very end of Aziz Ansari's stand-up from 2019. And there's two things you need to know if you know Aziz Ansari. He's a guy from Parks and, Parks and Rec. Um, two things you need to know going into this, just to help this make sense, is one, that his grandmother had been sick. She had been in hospice, and she had died. So he's going to reference that, so just know that. The other thing to know, and this is you know, slightly controversial, is Aziz Ansari, if you remember, was uh, kind of pulled in because of his own fault into the, the, um, some of the Me Too stuff, and he stopped doing stand-up because of, of some of that. And you can go on the internet and read about that. I think actually he was, he, it was quite problematic for him, and uh, he's, he's definitely not innocent for it. But this is his return, and I think it is, if you'll, if you'll give him an ear, there's something really insightful in this. So this is how his stand-up ends. Dan, glad you came out tonight. I'm glad you all came out tonight. And yeah. I really mean that. I really am very grateful you came, you know? Because, you know, I've done a lot of shows in my career. At the end of the shows, I'd always go, good night, thank you very much. But the truth is, I never really meant it. I was just saying that, because it's what you say at the end of a show, right? I mean, sure, I was grateful. I'm not a dick, but I wasn't grateful enough. I didn't really think about what it means that all you guys came out. But now, when I see you guys here, it hits me in a different way. I think about what it means that all you guys, you drove down here, you waited in line, and you did all of this stuff just to hear me talking to a microphone for like an hour or so. And it means the world to me because I saw the world where I don't ever get to do this again. Man, it almost felt like I died. And the way I did that old disease, and said, oh, treat yourself, whatever. He's dead. 
but I'm glad. That guy was always looking forward to whatever was next. Oh, am I going to do another tour? Am I going to do another season of show? But I don't think that way anymore. Because I realize it's all ephemeral. All that stuff, it can just go away like this. And all we really have is the moment we're in and the people we're with. Now, I talked about my grandma earlier, and it was sad. But what I didn't tell you was the whole time I was with her, she was smiling, she was laughing. She was there with me. She was present in a way no other people I've been around recently have been. I've tried to take that with me. Now, granted, my grandma doesn't have much choice in this matter. But I do. And that's how I choose to live. And the moment I'm in with the people I'm with. And right now, this is our moment, right? Me, you guys, Dan. <laughs> Random lady that yelled, funny. <laughs> Young Tyler who's scarred for life. <laughs> It's all of us. And this is our moment right now. So, you know what? Why don't we all just take it in for just a second? And on that, I will say good night and thank you very, very much. All right. It's quite powerful. It's really quite powerful, and it's a very different form of action. But if you thought of pastoral ministry, it really is helping people be these people in this moment. And there's so much theological depth to this. I mean, first of all, he can only get there because he has to go through a moment of confession where he has to confess. I used to say, thank you, good night. I never meant it. But through that moment of confession, it leads to a deep sense of gratitude be in this moment with these people. And in many ways, gratitude is the response that Luther thinks is the way we respond to our justification, that God has acted for us. So let's be these people in this place and say thank you to one another, to God. Acceleration, no time for that. But these people, this moment. But we'll have to go through the cross, have to make confessions. Confessions of the way the system pulls us. Confessions of the way we've capitulated to that. And it will also take something that's quite hard for us too, is some silence. It's very, I've never seen a stand-up bit end with leading a community into silence. But silence becomes very, I think, important in these hyperly accelerated times. But could your pastoral identity be to create communities that allow people to be these people in this moment through gratitude, silence, and confession. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these people, and thank you particularly for these students in the way that you've called them. And may they again and again hear your calling. And may we all walk 
in trust and in hope that you are leading us to be in these moments of gratitude and confession and to even right now be these people in this moment, reminded that we're here, that we're alive, and that it is good and it is a gift. Amen. Thank you.